we hope you do. Open them up to Job 13 as we continue our study in the book of Job. Job 13. And Job continues his defense against Zophar, who he dealt with last time we were together. After talking about God, Job, in this response to Zophar, returns to the subject of his three friends and he scolds them for not giving him good counsel. Some of the things that he says here is things that he already said earlier, but his friends' failures upset him so much that he keeps saying the same thing over and over again about how they failed him. And it's clear that Job's three friends weren't helping him at all. And here we see a couple of the ways that they failed him. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. Behold, my eyes, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So again, Job's friends didn't teach him anything new. He knows all the truths that his friends have explained to him. They haven't told him anything he didn't already know, and they haven't helped him one bit. Verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty and desire to reason with God. He says, you know what? I'd like to talk directly to the Almighty God. I want to argue my case with God himself. And since his friends couldn't help him, Job wanted to talk with God. Now, that's a pretty good choice and an obviously smart thing to do. Because Job would definitely get a lot more valuable and useful information from God than his three friends any day. Men so often don't tell us anything that's really helpful, but God and his word will always give us what we need. Look at verse 4. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. He says, all you guys do is slander me with lies. Now, these were very condemning words by Job. His three friends fell short when it came to speaking the truth about Job. He tells them, man, you guys are worthless physicians. Job compared his three friends to doctors who couldn't help him at all. And this was a sharp rebuke to his friends. His friends didn't bring him any comfort. All they did was add to his pain and his suffering. You know, it's like the woman in Luke chapter 8 who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Luke says she had spent all her income on doctors that couldn't heal her. And you could say that a lot of preachers and churches do the same thing when they don't preach God's word truthfully and faithfully. Because it doesn't bring healing to people. It only adds to and and prolongs their hurts, and especially when it comes to eternity. Verse 5. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Job says that if his three friends had kept quiet, it would have made them look wiser. He says, the wisest thing that you could have done for me was just to keep quiet. You know, if only more people would learn this. Even people in ministry. Because they don't know sometimes what they're saying and end up only adding to people's problems and and don't do anything to help solve them. Verse 6. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleading of my lips. 
Job accuses his three friends of not listening to him. One of the basic requirements of all good counselors is to listen. And sometimes pastors and counselors can do more good by just listening to, the, to those that they're talking to. Uh, just listen about their problems and not be so quick to say something. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, notice, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. If we were quicker to hear, if we were more you know, prone to listen and speak less, we'd be more likely not to get angry. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. In order for the communication process to be completed, three things are required. Talking, listening, and understanding. Talking seems to be the only thing that we do well most of the time. We want people to know what's on our mind. We want to get it off of our chest. But while one person is talking, the other should be listening but listening with the intent of understanding. And many times we think we're listening just because our mouth isn't moving. When in reality, our ears are just hearing noise while our brain is thinking a mile a minute about what I'm going to say when it's my turn. So after both are finished talking and getting it off of their chests, they both walk away thinking, okay, problem solved. Everything should be okay now. And then nothing changes. That's because nobody was actually listening with the intent of understanding. Neither one was listening to what the other had to say with the intent of understanding and then make the needed changes. Solomon said in Proverbs 16, 22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it. And the word understanding means intelligence. It means good sense. This intelligence is more than just mere book knowledge or learning about a particular subject. It has a greater significance, and it means insight or understanding. And the word understanding is pictured, it says in Proverbs 16, 22, as a fountain of life, a source of how to live. And Job's accusation of his friend's failure is found in verses 7 through 10. So let's look at 7 through 10. He says, will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out or can you mock him as one who mocks, one who mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. So in these verses 7 through 10, we see several dishonorable things Job's friends did. The first dishonorable thing that the three friends did, they failed to honor righteousness. Because you see, what they said was wicked. Secondly, the dishonorable things that Job's friends did was they were untruthful because you see, they accused Job of being partial and prejudiced. And third, the three friends failed to honor the facts because you see, they were partial in their judgment. Fourth, Job's friends were guilty of mocking him. And in mocking them, they dishonored kindness. Job's friends are charged by Job as mocking God. 
And this is a very serious accusation. Job's friends dishonored God by mocking him with their incorrect remarks about God. You see, when God says something and we say something contrary to that, we're mocking God. It's like we're saying, well, God really doesn't know what he's talking about. And verse 10 says, he will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. The sin of being partial is specifically mentioned here. And Job warns his friends that if they don't play fair, it's going to result in a sure rebuke from God. Look at verse 11. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Job says, doesn't his majesty terrify you? Doesn't your fear of him, your reverence of him overwhelm you? And what's said here can be attached to what was said above about the condemnation for dishonor. But there's also a suggested accusation here that the three friends in what they said showed they weren't terrified by the majesty of God. Now, when we're, when we're not afraid to speak against the word of God or contrary to the word of God, man, that's not a very safe place to be. They weren't afraid of God's terror falling upon them. They weren't humble before God. Verse 12. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. He says, your wise sayings, you know what? He says, they're, they're as valuable as ashes. Your defense is, is as flimsy as a clay pot. Now, the figure of speech that Job uses here, it's not common to us today, but they simply say that the, the three friends said, Job, your memorable, or Job said, your memorable sayings were like ashes and your bodies of clay, meaning that the three friends didn't say anything to give Job hope. They didn't show Job any hope, any comfort. What they said was worthless, it was arrogant, and it was useless. What they said didn't give Job any hope, any help, or any encouragement. Earlier in verse 3, Job said that the failure of his three friends to give him any help caused him to walk, to want to talk directly to God for help. And we have that recorded here in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. So here in verse 13, Job asks his three friends to, hey, just be kind enough to just be quiet when I talk to God. And after that, after I talk with God, whatever happens, happens. I will accept the consequences. In other words, Job doesn't want his friends to be a distraction while he prays. This is such a simple request. Yet it's very important. It shows the courteous respect that we need to give to prayer. You know, when others are praying, we need to show respect. We, not, we, we, we shouldn't be a distraction from this important practice, this holy practice, this holy time. Job has such respect for God that he shows some fear in coming to God. Even the writer in Hebrews 4.16 encourages us to come boldly to the throne of grace. We need to have and we need to show the reverent fear that Job had for God. 
which is sorely lacking in, in, in a lot of churches today. We've lost the fear of God, the reverence of God. In Job's mind, he was fearful. But he came to God anyway, which showed that his coming to God about his problem took a lot of courage. Job talks about his words of courage and the risk for courage. Job says he's going to talk to God, he says, no matter what happens to me. Now, this shows real spiritual courage. You see, in Job's mind, the risk of going to God with his problem is that he could lose his life. You see, you could never go into a king's presence without permission because you could be killed. It reminds us of the risk that Esther took when she went in to see the king without permission, even, even though he was her husband. And she said, you know what? If I perish, I perish. So be it. Job was going to talk with God no matter how risky he may have thought it was. And thank God that today we know there's no risk in talking to God. We can go to him anytime with any problem, regardless of how big or how small. Now, the danger isn't in praying, it's in not praying. Job's fear is commendable. It's praiseworthy because it shows his respect for God, like I said, which is really lacking today. Verse 14. He says, why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? He says, yes, I will take my life in my hands and I'm going to say what I really think. You know, he wants to know, God, why am I suffering? Such terrible miseries. Why am I going through these, th- these things? He says, I can't help but wonder why, God, you would lay so much suffering on me when you know I'm not a wicked man. And the meaning is in connection with verse 13. Let come on me what may, I will take my flesh in my teeth and I will put my life in my hands. In other words, I will expose myself to the greatest dangers, God, no matter what. Come life or death, I am not going to be afraid. He says, I am determined to speak my mind no matter what the consequences might be. And he agrees to whatever happens after that. Verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Verse 15 is probably... A pretty well-known verse. This is one of the greatest things Job said in the whole book. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Man, that is a great statement of consecration to God. It's a great statement of somebody's faith being immovable, steadfast. Job says, no matter what happens to me, when I come to pray to God, even if he should kill me, I will keep on trusting him. Job had expressed his courage to pray. And here he speaks about his consecration in praying by saying he will pray in faith. The word faith means in trust to God, even though he might kill me. The commentator Barnes said this. The sentiment here expressed is one of the noblest that could fall from the lips of man. 
It indicates unwavering confidence in God, even in death. It is, the ter- it is the determination of a mind to adhere to him, though he should strip away uh, comfort after comfort, and though there should be no respite to his sorrows until he should sink down in death. This is the highest expression of piety. This is Job's greatest statement of faith. You see, Job's friends were accusing him of, of committing some gross secret sin like immorality or dishonesty or some other sin of the flesh. But Job isn't guilty of any of it. But here we start to see the root of Job's problem. Job says he is going to go into the presence of God and he will defend himself there. Listen. The minute you go into the presence of God to start defending yourself, you're going to lose your case. You're going to lose the case when you stand before him. The holy God. Because God is the standard for all men. And when you come before God, the only thing you can do is say, Lord, I'm guilty. Because he knows you. He knows me. You can't go into the presence of God with an attorney and have some clever defense strategy to clear you of the accusation. No attorney can change what God has said. And God has said that we have all sinned, that we have all come short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no not one, that all have sinned, and that the the soul that sins shall die. Now, what can you say to that? What do you what defense do you have against that? Do you think God is mistaken? Uh, Is God missing something? God doesn't change what he said at all. He doesn't reconsider it. He doesn't say, well, you know, maybe maybe there is something about you that is okay." No clever lawyer can't get you out of that. You're going to stand before the almighty, holy judge of this universe who is the moral ruler. And no one can defend their case before God. The thing to do is to go in before God and plead guilty and throw yourself upon his mercy. You'll find that God has a mercy seat. And it's a mercy seat because the blood of Jesus Christ is on it. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And that's the only way you can escape the penalty of death and hell. Is through the blood of Christ. And you can see that Job desperately needs somebody to represent God to him and to keep him from trying to defend himself before God. 1 John 2.1, John said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, he says, notice, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice that John says, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is the advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate is from the Greek word parakletos. It's the same word that's translated uh, comforter in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is our comforter down here, and Jesus is our comforter up there. 
advocate, a paraclete, a helper. It's a legal term. It means one who will come to your side to help in every time of need. Revelation 12.10 uh, 12, says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us before our God day and night. Satan is there at the throne of God and he's accusing you and he's accusing me all the time, hoping that something will stick. That's what he did with Job. He basically said to God, if you let me get to Job, I will show you that he will curse you. And when that happens in our case, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to step in and say, Father, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. They're under the blood. He steps in as our advocate. He died for us. He bled for us. The accuser is there, but the advocate is much greater than the accuser. Someone needed to show Job that he can throw himself on the mercy of God. And this book has a tremendous message for us. Job said, I will defend my own ways before him. And this speaks of Job's continued insistence that he hasn't done some great wickedness that is causing all of his problems. Job says, I will continue to say that I am his friend and that I am not a hypocrite like my friends say I am. Job will not change his position nor his words. Verse 16. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Job says, this is what's going to save me. I'm not godless. If I were, I couldn't, I couldn't stand before God. And we can see here that Job is starting to see some signs of hope for him. He says, he shall be my salvation. And this is the teaching of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that God is our salvation. Today, salvation is in Jesus Christ and Christ only. You either have Christ or you don't. You either trust him or you don't. There are no other alternatives. There is no neutral ground that you can stand on. You stand on one side or the other. You're either for him or you're against him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the only out. The only hope for the human race. And it's great that Job, who probably lived in the days of the forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he had any ray of hope at all. Verse 17. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. Job asks God to hear his prayer and to be sincere in listening to his prayer. Job had just said that he would be very sincere in praying. Now he wants God to be very sincere in listening to his prayer. And if you want God to be sincere for you, then you have to be sincere, just as sincere with him. Now notice, Job said this. Job made this statement during the darkest time of his life. 
He had lost just about everything that he had. His family. His wealth. His reputation. His friends were criticizing him. And his wife wasn't encouraging him at the time. And yet in this darkest time of his life, he said he was still trusting God. It is easy to say wonderful things about God when everything is going well. But to say what Job said in the thick of darkness is what really shows one's faith to be real and great. Even though he slay me, I will trust him. See, that's the kind of faith we need to cultivate. A faith like this that will shine in the darkness of time, as in, in the dark times as well as the good times. Verse 18. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Job felt that God would pardon him. His friends didn't think he would, but Job had confidence that God would clear him. And Job was right. The beginning and the end of the book of Job shows that he was in the right and the afflictions that he was going through weren't due to some great wickedness in his life. Instead, they were due to his godliness, something that his three friends didn't pick up on at all. Verse 19. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. He says, who can argue me, with me about this? And if you prove me wrong, hey, I'll stay quiet and die. Job says two important things here that cause him to pray to God. He says, who can argue with me about this? Job's friends are definitely not pleading Job's case. So Job has to plead his own case by himself. So he'll go to God and plead his case. And he says, and if you prove me wrong, I'll just stay quiet and die. Job's prayer to God was so filled with passion that he said, if he didn't pray, he would die. It's a figure of speech that we even use today. You know, if so-and-so, and so, yeah, I'll die. I'll just die. It shows the seriousness of what Job wanted to say to God about this situation, about his situation. Look at verse 20 and then verse 22. He says, Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Verse 22. Then call and I will answer or let me speak. Then you respond to me. Job asks for two things regarding his prayer. Look at verse 21 now. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. He says, first of all, God, remove your hand far from me. Job didn't want to continue the affliction, you know, to, to continue in his afflictions while he prayed. He wanted to be free from his affliction, from his pain and his suffering in his body and his mind to present his case to God. Clearly, the physical problems that he had, wouldn't, they would get in the way of his prayer. You know, when we're hurting and we're suffering and we're troubled, it's hard to pray. It's hard to focus on our prayer. So Job prayed here that God would stop the affliction during this time. And the second thing he asked for, he said, let not the dread of you make me afraid. God, don't inflict me with fear, which he had experienced. With the present troubles he was going through, there also came fear that often comes with great problems. And Job asked God to take away that fear so that he could pray with a clear mind and not have any distractions. 
And Job's concern in the prayer was for two things. Look at verse 23. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. He says, Lord, my friends believe that I have done something terrible that's causing the problems that I'm dealing with. But Job says there isn't. So when he comes to God, one of his concerns is that, Lord, show me the great wickedness in my life. If there's one thing that's causing all of my problems, show them to me. Here's the second thing he asks. Look at in verse 24 through 25. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a, a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? He says, Lord, why are you my enemy? Job considers his problems to be a sign that God is, an, is his enemy. And Job uses a leaf that's blown around by the wind. And he uses dry stubble to represent him, both of them being an unworthy object of God's hostility toward him. God, why are you hostile towards me? Why are you treating me like a leaf that's just blown around in the wind and, and like stubble, dry stubble? It, they're of no value. Job wonders why, his, why is God so concerned about such a trivial person like himself? Job has some complaints about the way God is treating him. Look at verse 26. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Lord, you write bitter accusations against me. And Lord, you bring up all the sins of my path, all of the sins of my youth. It seems to Job that his affliction says that God is accusing him of many evil things. But God isn't doing that. But Job, in his negative attitude, his negative judgment of his problems, thinks that that's what's going on. Then Job complains that God is remembering all the old sins of his youth. And that God is holding all those sins of his youth against him, and he's being punished for them. Man, how many people think the same way? When they're going through a difficult time or something tragic has happened in their life or something's going on that, that is just painful and, and, and creating a lot of suffering, you know, they're saying, man, God must be paying me back for all that I did in my life. That their old and forsaken sins are being remembered and God's holding them against them and they're being punished for them. Verse 27. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. The troubles that Job is going through limit him so much that he says it's as if God has put my feet in stocks. I can't go anywhere. God has become so critical of me. He's studying every step that I take in my life to see if he can find something, some sin in my life. The phrase, you set a limit for the soles of my feet. In the King James Version, it reads like this. Thou settest a print upon the hills of my feet, which means to cut. In Job's punishment, some sort of cutting of the bottom of the foot was done. Some believe it was the mark caused by the stalks on his feet. Job complains about this misery. Verse 28. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job complains that God, using Job's troubles, 
is eating him up like like rot eats up things and like a garment that's eaten by moss. Lord, my, my, my problems, they're consuming me. They're eating up my life. Like rot eats up things and like a garment that's eaten by a moth. Job's, trou- Job's troubles have eaten up his fame. Job's troubles has eaten up his family and his wealth. Job feels like he's just rotting away. And he can't see any reason for all of his suffering. In closing, remember, man at his best doesn't live long. But under God's rebukes, he passes even sooner. David said in Psalm 38.3, there is no soundness. The word soundness means health. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nor any health in my bones because of my sin. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> he says, if there is so little soundness in the soul... It shouldn't be a surprise that there's little soundness in the flesh. Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence because out of it, the heart, spring the issues of life. You see, your heart determines the life. Nothing will cause unrest in a, man's, in a good man's heart like the sense of God's anger, which shows a fearful thing. What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the Lord. The way to keep the heart at rest is to keep ourselves in the love of God and to not do anything that offends him. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for your abounding grace. Lord, we thank you for your enduring mercy, Lord. We thank you for your word, God. And Lord, let us take it and apply it to our life, God. Lord, let us not just fill our head with knowledge, but may we be imitators of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this evening. We praise you for your word. And God, we pray now that you would be with all of your people as they go their way. Protect them. And get them home safely, God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.